here um, for another exciting episode of Book and Film Globe Week in Review. As always, we are recording this uh, for podcasts that will be available uh, in, a, in a bit on uh, Apple and uh, Spotify and iTunes, wherever you find your finest podcasts everywhere. And um, I think all of us here in the room are familiar with Book and Film Globe, but um, on the off chance someone's about to pop in, it is nothing less than the finest uh, culture website we find on the internet. I'm Sharon Vane. I am filling in today for Neil Pollock, who is the editor, and I'm a regular contributor who normally talks about book stuff, which is what I'm going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about books first, and then movies, and uh, wrap up with TV. So I'd like to invite Katie um, up. Katie Smith is another one of our contributors, and she covers the publishing industry, so she is the perfect person to talk with me about The Other Black Girl, which I reviewed this week for the site. This is one of the buzziest debuts uh, we've got this summer. It's uh, from a debut author, Zakia Delila Harris. She worked in publishing for three years for Doubleday, and funneled a lot of her experiences into this book, which is a novel, but finds a lot of uh, truth and some of its uh, plot points from things that are happening in the industry. What I love about this book is that it's incredibly topical. It talks about um, race and identity and sort of the all-white world of publishing and what it's like to be the only black employee. Protagonist Nella Rogers is, in fact, just that. Um, And another black girl comes to work at Wagner Publishing. um, And and, uh, at first... Nella is excited about this. She thinks she's going to have a compatriot, someone to talk about what it's like to be a black person in an all-white industry. Um, And then things start to really go awry. Um, uh, Her uh, cohort, um, Hazel May, uh, starts off really nice, starts off super special, um, and they go out to lunch, they trade gossip, and then all of a sudden she kind of becomes a frenemy in the middle of the workplace and Nella starts questioning herself and uh, wonders whether Hazel is a friend or foe. So Katie, I would love to bring you into the conversation to talk a little bit about um, kind of the real life corollaries um, to this book Mm -hmm. um, and uh, sort of the the unique position it occupies um, as a a fictional take on a very real thing. Yeah. I think what's so interesting about this book is a few things, but, um, I don't know. I mean, Sharon, you're in a position where I am, where I feel like you're maybe on like a lot of listservs, you know, people in publishing contact you to put books in front of you because they want to review. And I feel like I I do too. I I receive some review copies and whatever. And um, I feel like there's so much money and publishing power and interest behind this book this summer. Um, It's like all that I'm seeing. It's all that anybody's talking about. I've gotten like multiple copies of it, sent it to my, to my house because it's evident that, you know, people really want, um, 
you know, this story told, and this is the book that, you know, they're trying to sell for the summer. But at the same time, um, you know, I don't know necessarily that the industry that is marketing this book and publishing it is also at the same time doing the work to maybe resolve some of the issues that are going on inside of it. Um, is that accurate to your experience? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the things that I loved so much about this book, and I should say, I don't think you need to be a denizen of book Twitter the way mm-hmm. you and I are. Yeah. Um, you need to follow the industry, this specific industry. I think sort of the, um, the situations that she spotlights are mm-hmm. true for a lot of industries. Yeah. But um, there is a delicious irony in this <laughs> book being the book of the summer. I, yes. You know, see, see it everywhere. It was just named as a, the book club pick for this month for Good Morning America. Um, the author was profiled in the New York Times. Uh, you know, sort of everything you would imagine besides uh, behind a big book. And um, yet, she's 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 the one black author, just like yeah. they talk about um, in the fictional story that she relates. Um, mm-hmm. I imagine the meetings going on of you know we've got our black author, we've got our black book, mm-hmm. um, and she's got some wonderful set pieces where you know her main character Nella is an editorial assistant um, who's asked to provide feedback on a manuscript. And she's finding concerns with it. There's one black character. Mm-hmm. The black character is named Chartricia. She has seven children. She's mm-hmm. a drug addict. And these very overt racial stereotypes. And um, uh, she, she brings these up in a meeting. And all of the white employees just absolutely take offense and bristle and, you know, ask, are you calling me racist? Yeah. Why are you bringing this up? So it's this, this interesting dynamic, which I think we've seen, we see happen almost every week, right? Yeah. Somebody getting called out for a unfavor or a, a racist portrayal or a problematic portrayal. Right. Um, and I'm curious, I know you said this was published by Doubleday or she worked for Doubleday, but where is this published by? It's published by Simon, uh, an imprint of Simon yeah. & Schuster. It's Atria Books. And okay. um, Simon & Schuster, um, and maybe you can talk just briefly about this, has been one of the employees there have been among the leads in pushing back on problematic representations of problematic authors. Right. So what I had seen um, in connection with this title is um, sort of, I'll use your phrase, a delicious irony in the fact that it was Simon & Schuster, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, that is putting this out be- because um, Simon & Schuster, if I'm not mistaken, is also the same publisher who's trying to um, publish Mike Pence, who wanted to publish um, the uh, memoir of the police officer who killed Breonna Taylor, um, and a couple of other just kind of sticky, political, and unfortunate titles that are, they're putting out this summer um, at the same time as this. <laughs> right. It, it's, it's just, you know, one hand... Uh... I won't say it doesn't know what the other's doing, but it, it's yeah. definitely interesting um, that this is front and center at this particular time in the industry. Um, yeah. Have you uh, have you had a chance to, to read the novel yet? I read, I started it uh, earlier in the week, so I'm like about halfway through, but don't worry, you can spoil whatever. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to spoil here. I just, uh, one of the things I loved about it is there's a true horror element. One of yes. the inspirations that... Uh, 
Miss um, Harris has cited is Get Out, and yes. you definitely see elements of that. Um, there's a, a, a key part, and this is not a spoiler, where mm -hmm. Nella gets back to her desk, and mm -hmm. a note is on her desk that says, Leave Wagner now. Yeah. And some of the book is her figuring out uh, who's behind those notes, and there's a really uh, just sort of sinister um, subplot going on, which is fun. So Yeah, it feels like, I don't know, I feel like I love a beach read as much as the next gal, and I love, you know, to pull up with a thriller or something really fast-paced that I get to read, you know, while I'm on vacation and not really think about whatever. And I love how this is written because I feel like this could, while it's talking about um, issues, particularly in publishing, but I think are in a lot of workplaces that are really important to be talking about and are not often spoken about, it also has this really, like, enticing thriller feel where, I don't know, the first 100 pages that I read, I read like super fast because I was like I really want to know like I know something's about to happen and I want to get there you know right absolutely uh, I love this mix of this very topical themes mm -hmm. but super readable super enjoyable um, just a just a great mix um, I think sometimes you see those buzz books come out and you read them and think that was okay but um, <laughs> this really um, lived up to the hype for me yeah so. Anyway, thank you so much, Katie, for coming on and talking with me about this. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. Thank you for that having was, me. I uh, loved it. The, the other black girl, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on a, a future edition yeah, um, yeah. of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review. Um, I'm going to call up uh, Dan Friedman now, um, who also wrote a review for us uh, this week of... Um, a new uh, edition of the Hugo-nominated series, uh, Murderbot, the Murderbot series. He wrote about Martha Wells' fugitive telemetry. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Good to have you here. So for folks who are not familiar with the Murderbot Diaries, tell us a little bit about <laughs> the premise of the series we're going to be using the word murderbot as much as possible in this segment. I just want to let you know. Um, exactly. So at any given moment when I can say that, I'll be saying that. So tell us about the murderbot series. So if there are, in fact, people out there who do not know what the murderbot series are or know what a murderbot is, um, we're talking about an old... Well, actually, what's interesting is that the, in... So we're talking about a series of novels and novel, novellas and mini novelettes, actually in a couple of short stories that Martha Wells wrote as well, that feature as a protagonist a, a murderbot, a security unit that has hacked its governor module so that it, this is in an alternate universe where these um, half robots, half organic people things are put out into the universe to defend the property of the capital C company. Uh, and, and they can also be hired by people to, um, uh, to protect your own property when you're working with the company. Uh, and this security unit, this SEC unit, um, has hacked its module, so it's free from the shackles of the company, uh, but somehow, through beautiful plot points, uh, very early on, uh, right before the series, really, uh, it, 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 as, it, as it found its independence, it also found... Um, soap operas, uh, essentially, um, uh, in this futuristic alternate universe. Uh, and these soap operas 
made it kind of half fall in love with human beings. So although it is now free to kill with impunity, and it's extremely well equipped to do so, it feels uh, a, a slight compunction to protect people. It likes the storylines, and, and its general modus operandi is that uh, it can it, it can always um, always kill people later because the soap the soap opera it has a soap opera and it can always kill the people later when the soap opera is finished. It's got everything, really. It's a murder <laughs> bot with a with a fan uh, a, a fan base for uh, for for telenovelas and and. and uh, crazy plots. So, so yeah. what happens in this particular outing, this, this latest outing, it, it's kind of a genre mashup, if you will, it seems like. Yeah, it's a bit of a genre mashup. So in earlier, um, so earlier adventures have happened, uh, uh in other locations and what's, uh, on, on, um, uh, expeditions, uh, and, and trips this on this one, some of the people whose lives he saved turn out to be extremely important in a very small, um, sort of hippie enclave world. It's sort of, it's called preservation. Uh, and it's a little bit like a, sort of a, a cosmic Berkeley. Um, so it's, uh, it believes in human rights and, and, uh, and treating people well and uh, universal love and, and things, other things that the rest of the universe doesn't seem to believe in. Uh, and, but in doing so, in saving these people, uh, the SEC unit, because it doesn't actually refer to itself publicly as Murderbot, it only refers to itself laconically internally as Murderbot. Um, so interesting. I, I feel like they, it, it should refer to itself as Murderbot, right? Well, That's very catchy. I think. I think that. I think that it, it, it uses the principle of less is more. I'm not sure whether. It, it was told whether one of its human allies suggested that, that it, it not call itself Murderbot, because the, these security units are treated as chattel, essentially as slaves, by everyone, even though they do have some organic material in them, and um, and so and so by and are feared by pretty much everyone because they're pretty lethal um, units. Uh, and so they, uh, so calling itself Murderbot as it was, as it is trying to um, show that it is um, worthy of independence and being treated as a proper you know, individual. Like I think there's, there's definitely something political there that it's being coached to, to do. Um, but uh, but in, in saving it, it, these people who are now its friends, um, it has, pissed off Grey Chris, which is kind of a rogue corporation that's also pissed off the company. Uh, and, it's, and what's happened is that it's worried that it's brought this Grey Chris to attack um, preservation. And so the, the, the novel begins on the space station uh, orbiting the planet of preservation. And, uh, and the, the novel begins essentially crouched over a dead body, and we have to work out is this great, Chris? If it is, how are they attacking? If it's not, who is it? Why are they doing it? How do we save the people who's being threatened? All these, all these different things. And, uh, and, and on the way, the murder bot um, is extremely exasperated because, you know, obviously, well, not obviously, but this preservation doesn't want a lethal um, security unit hacking into all its systems. So it has to kind of do it both hands tied behind its back and eyes closed and, uh, and, and you know, tiptoeing backwards on high heels. 
<laughs> well, it, it seems like, uh, you know, kind of part of the appeal of all of these stories, but this one as well, is that, you know, very human-like, kind of wry, acerbic personality uh, of, of the SEC unit and kind of how he navigates in that space amongst humans as a part human, part murder bot. Yes, no, exactly. The, the, he's, well, it's, it's interesting. I'm almost certain that there's no, genre, no gender um, uh, um, placed upon uh, the murder bot. Uh, and although, <laughs> although people do refer to it as a he frequently because uh, you know, men are more associated with murderous lethal weapons and stuff. But um, he, uh, but, but the murder bot um, does have this sense of humor. It's shunned by humans and um, uh, and robots alike as as a as a as a. It's shunned as a com as a um, as a colleague, but 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 the murderer is able to talk to both of them, uh, and and so it doesn't feel really part of any society, but feels beloved by the rise and fall of um, uh, of of the, of the soap opera, um, and 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 it, and it is generally exasperated by. Uh, human softness and uh, robot stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> those are those are good things to be uh, to be uh, confused by and to, to have a, a, a short fuse by. I, I, a shoot, short fuse for, I imagine. So awesome. Well, thank you, Dan, for being on and telling us about this again. That's Fugitive Telemetry. Um, it's the newest novel in um, the. Uh, Murderbot Diaries series um, by Martha Wells, and uh, the whole series is nominated for uh, Hugo, and I think it's won a Nebula. Um, so check it out. Um, yeah, and then the, the last, the, the the one before this is also um, up for a Hugo Award this year. So uh, it's uh, pe people like it. People like it. That is, sometimes that's the, the best recommendation. People, uh, people like it. So thank you so much, Dan. Thank uh, you so much. That, uh, that wraps up our, our book section of things. Uh, just a reminder, this is Book and Film Globe's Week in Review, and we are recording this uh, for a podcast uh, that will be available on Spotify and iTunes. to move on to the movie section of things and I'm gonna um, bring up uh, Kenji Fujishima who reviewed a movie that is um, newly available in the States today from German filmmaker Christian Petzold um, and it's called Undine. Welcome Kenji. Uh, hi Sarah thanks for having me again. <laughs> of course thanks for being on so um, this filmmaker is uh, pretty well known amongst uh, fans of movies um, and uh, has quite a back catalog. Tell us a little bit about him first and why he is a filmmaker of note. Uh, well, uh, Petzold, uh, he's, a, he's a German filmmaker who is a uh, perhaps arguably the most well, widely known of his current generation of filmmakers that have been called the Berlin School, first uh, non-TV movie, uh, the state 
that in 2000, and he's been working pretty steadily ever since. Um, uh, his movies are very interesting, at least to me, in that uh, they are they are very political, but also deal a lot with like Hollywood genres in their own kind of dry. Some might say overly academic, but I mean, I, I guess I find that interesting way. Um, and so, for instance, he made a film called Yella in 2007. That's kind of a German riff on this American horror film from 1962 called Carnival of Souls. Uh, except set in present day and is a comment on like capitalism in 20th century Germany. <laughs> um, and so uh, I think because of that, his film probably the most, um, I guess, relatively accessible as far as like for as far as international audiences go. Um, he also made a movie called Phoenix uh, about back in 2014, which is kind of a riff on Hitchcock's Vertigo. It's set in set in World War Two, uh, and um, so. Um, but he also deals. He also deals a lot with like German history, and um, so there's a there's a lot to parse in his films. So. Um, and and it sounds like this new one is no exception. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about Undine. Well, this one. Uh, as far as I know, uh, this is his first time dealing with like mythology um, and magical realism. This is kind of a leap for him in that regard. While the style is basically pretty similar to his other films, but in this one, he basically takes, uh, basically does like a modern day version of, well, basically the, uh, the, the, uh, the myth that basically inspired most famously The Little Mermaid. Um, Undine being a water nymph who uh, basically uh, is a half human and a half sea creature who is willing to give up her life uh, in the sea for a human soul, which she can only by marrying a human being. And uh, if that human being uh, cheats on her, basically, uh, that, that human being might suffer dire consequences. That's basically how this new film begins um and, but then that meets another person and they, they have kind of a love affair but basically uh she can't quite outrun her destiny but it, it sounds like from what uh, as you describe in the in the review um that um is just today on the website at uh, bookandfilmglobe.com um that there's just some really beautiful sections um, and that sort of the craft of filmmaking is really on display in these kind of watery, enchanting, romantic scenes and segments that um, are part of this movie. Yeah, and I think that is kind of, for me at least, uh, him kind of pushing the boundaries of his own art because, I mean, the the setup basically allows him to, uh, you know, indulge in, like, there are, like, scenes in which it just, like, one or two characters underwater and you know we see uh some of the you know magical stuff that can happen underwater you know um um and that that's kind of uh new for him and i mean i guess i have kind of a kind of a weakness for that kind of as a fantasy element so uh um but i think that might also uh appeal to a broader audience 
even if some of the uh, th there is also some some uh, some elements in this movie related to like political like German political and even architectural history, which uh, may may um, throw some viewers off. But uh, I think there's I, I think there's still uh, enough here that you know most audiences will be able to appreciate what I think it's trying to do, which is kind of marry this mytholo these mytholo mythological elements with a commentary about like German history and the way like uh, even German like German history is perhaps uh, bound by a certain like destiny you know like repeating itself you know so <laughs> gotcha well it sounds like a really interesting um uh, sort of mix of elements that work together into a, a really cohesive whole and and uh, certainly as you say uh, it sounds like with yeah, I think most people are in, familiar enough with that um, that mermaid myth to um, kind of bring that to the watching of the movie so thank you Kenji for being here I sure appreciate it um, and uh, check out Kenji's review of Undine uh, that just dropped this morning on uh bookandfilmglobe.com. Um, next, we're going to be talking about uh, one of my absolute favorite pieces this week from uh, Lani Gonzalez, who's here to talk about the rise of the prequels. And um, folks from last week who uh, saw the site um, and uh, tuned in heard about Cruella, which is the origin story through Cruella DeVille, but that's just the latest example of um, just prequel after prequel after origin story, which Lonnie just hilariously details in this piece. Um, welcome back to the show, Lonnie. Tell us about why you decided to write this piece. What was the <laughs> what was the thing that pushed you over the edge? <laughs> Thanks, Sharon. <laughs> Well, yeah, I would say, you know, what kind of pushed me over the edge was the recent, uh, was Cruella coming out, um, as well as the recent announcement about a new Willy Wonka uh, prequel called Wonka, starring Timothy Chalamet, and I, I just had, thought... I just had an exclamation point, like, Wonka! <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know, like, it may be kind of more serious, I'm not really sure, um, because it's before he has the chocolate factory, which is kind of the cool, fun part of Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory, so this is, you know, I don't know what, him trying to figure out how to start a small business or something like that, which doesn't seem, you know, as vibrant. Right. Well, and, and you talk a little bit about how um, there has just been a whole raft and, uh, you know, just like endless uh, mining of um, existing properties to just bring out like yet another rise of yeah, yeah. to um, those kinds of things. Um, what um, what's your take on why um, these are so popular? Why they just keep you know going after the same well of material? Well, I mean, I don't know why they're so popular because I think a lot of the time they're not. They don't really work that well. Um, <laughs> I think it's, they're popular by the people making them because, you know, ever since the Star Wars prequels were so uh, profitable, they realized, you know, oh, we have all this existing IP that people like. Let's just, um, you know, 
turn back the clock 20 years and have the one character be young all of a sudden. And uh, that's, you know, that's what we'll make a new movie about rather than trying to find something new. Um, but I think they've, it's been so prevalent in the last 10 years or so that now there's just all these established tropes with the prequels too. So it doesn't even feel like a fresh take on a character where it might have at first, but now it's like, okay, well, we'll see, you know, these sort of origin stories start. And, you know, they've always got to have all these connections to the characters in the later movies that don't even really make much sense when you were talking about an earlier story, but they try to shoehorn things in so people can be like, oh, hey, I remember that from the movie that I liked. But I don't think that necessarily makes these prequels a good movie. Right, right. Maybe just a watchable movie or a moneymaker movie. Um, I don't want to ruin all of your great lines in this piece, but I, it, I would be remiss if I did not bring up the Grease cinematic universe. Um, tell us about the plans for the Grease cinematic universe. Yeah, that was another one that really um, surprised me when I found out there are there's not just one but two prequels uh, to the 1978 musical movie Grease, um, which I think makes it one of the only like Broadway shows with a cinematic universe <laughs> at this point. Right. With two movies, you can't forget Grease two, and then now the two prequels. One of which is a series about the Pink Ladies, and then. The, that is actually which, called Rise, Rise of the Pink Ladies, of course, because we which must may memorize. Murderbot is my most favorite phrase <laughs> of this podcast. Rise of the Pink Ladies. I want to say that again. And then what's the other one called? Um, oh, it's called um, Summer Eleven, and it's basically the plot of the song Summer Nights stretched out into a movie about that summer that Sandy met Danny. Right, which, you know, apparently there's like a whole fan theory on the internet that Sandy nearly, nearly did drown for real. And then they're going to spread this into (laughs) 78 to 89 minutes, you know. You know, I've never doubted Sandy's account of that story. I think if you watch the movie and you see the song performance, you realize that Sandy's telling the truth and Danny's just full of BS. And, you know, I don't need a movie to prove that. This is true. I think Grease is a good example also. I'll be interested to see how they handle this of a movie that, you know, I remember seeing this as a, you know, impressionable young child and feeling like this was the greatest movie ever. And I, too, wanted a satin jacket. Um, I wanted to sing. I wanted to do all the things. And then watching it as an adult, I thought, well, this is a terrible message um, that you've got to completely change yourself to be successful. But I'm probably bringing um, 2021 sensibilities to 1978, which often uh, doesn't work. But um, Well, and that's kind of part of the thing that they do with prequels, too, is trying to sort of um, rehabilitate characters or bring in, yeah, like modern ideas, which... I don't think it's bad to look at something with modern eyes. Like, yeah, Greece maybe doesn't have a great message. But I also don't think we need to, for example, try to give Cruella DeVille, you know, her full story and see her side or something like that. She's still a villain that wanted to kill dogs. Like, that doesn't, knowing that um, things in her, you know, early life 
does it make me feel more sympathetic to her in the newer movie, or does it make me, uh, or more, whatever you want to call it? I can't even like get the timeline straight. <laughs> right. Well, it's a, I mean, I feel like the new Cruella movie is really just an excuse to see. Emma Stone sort of dolled up in a lot of like really incredible outfits and costuming and production design as opposed to any meaningful backstory. Um, Cause I'm, I'm going to concur that I don't need, I don't know that I needed backstory on Corella DeVille, but um, if we're going to have it, I, it, it just, I need a lot of kind of fitted leather cat suits or dog suits as the case may be. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, please um, uh, go check this uh, very funny essay out. There's um, some uh, great uh, uh, takes on prequels to come that you shouldn't miss. Um, so head on over to bookandfilmglobe.com. Thank you, Lonnie. I appreciate you being here. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for letting me be cranky about movies. But in such a funny way. That's, <laughs> that's the perfect kind of cranky. So, so that's our movie chat, our film chat. We're going to move on to television. Just a reminder for everybody, we are bookandfilmglobe.com, and we are recording live here on Clubhouse. Um, for a podcast that will be available on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your fine culture podcasts. Um, let's bring up Scott Gold. Scott, unmute yourself. We're going to be talking about The Bad Batch, which you revert, uh, reviewed for us this week, um, which is part of uh, the wide Star Wars uh, canon and part of the animated Star Wars canon. So... Tell us a little bit about what The Bad Batch is and um, uh, why it's a standout. Uh, well, thanks for having me here, Sharon. Uh, I love writing about Star Wars. I love writing reviews about Star Wars because it is, uh, as you mentioned, it's such a, it's such a vast galaxy uh, open to all sorts of narratives. And what The Bad Batch is is uh, basically a spin-off of The Clone Wars, which ran for seven seasons as uh, an animated Star Wars show. Uh, and the most important thing that came out of The Clone Wars was The Mandalorian, because really what happened was that Dave Filoni, who was uh, writing and running The Clone Wars, really proved his mettle to the people at Lucasfilm and then to the people at Disney uh, as, as a person who can deftly handle the Star Wars universe and really, uh, you know, write a gripping narrative that's both, you know, familiar and in a lot of ways new. Um, and so fans of Star Wars really just loved the Clone Wars, myself included. It gave us a lot of really new and great characters, as well as some familiar characters. It filled in, and a lot of times retconned, a lot of backstory that we missed in the films. Uh, and really just gave us a lot of wonderful, you know, just Star Wars, the things that we love about it. Action, adventure, uh, you know, deep, deeper you know, kind of political and philosophical themes, uh, lots of cool stuff with the Force, and of course, lightsabers galore. Um, and where the Bad Batch comes in is as a spinoff of the Clone Wars, it comes in right as the Clone Wars end. So if, if you're familiar with um, 
the prequel films, this would be at the tail end of the film Revenge of the Sith, where Anakin Skywalker gets chopped and chopped up and burned to a crisp by Obi-Wan Kenobi on Mustafar and dons his Vader suit. Uh, Chancellor Palpatine uh, declares himself emperor and you know basically we have the rise of the galactic empire and the most important thing is that we have what's called order 66 uh where the where palpatine had this long gestating plot involving the the clones who've been fighting in this clone war against the separatist army they have this inhibitor chip that is supposed to make them, you know, better soldiers and a little bit, you know, easier to command. Uh, and he kind of commandeers this inhibitor chip in their brains to uh, hijack it man, uh, um, Manchurian candidate style and have them turn against the Jedi and basically slaughter every living Jedi. Like, that becomes their primary objective. Uh, and it's a really tragic and gripping and, you know, sad moment in the Star Wars universe um, when we have all these clones who have no other choice but to turn on the Jedi. Uh, so with the Bad Batch, we have a group of clones who are a little bit different than the regular clones. They were actually bred, these five clones, with very special mutations that give them an edge uh, as troopers. Um, but at the same time, it makes them misfits amongst the other clones. So there's a tracker, there's a sniper, there's a big, strong barbarian, there's a cyborg, and there's basically a tech hacker guy. Um, and when Order 66 happens, uh, most of the Bad Batch, uh, you know, who are kind of, you know, these myth, this misfit band of anti-heroes, um, apparently their inhibitor chips don't get the order. So they get to watch as all these clones start slaughtering the Jedi, and they don't know what to make of it. Uh, and so this puts them at odds. Uh, you know, it makes them very dangerous to the nascent Empire, uh, as well as, um, you know, to the cloners. And so they have to go on the run. And in the process, they wind up picking up an adorable little scamp uh, who appears to be a young female clone, the first female clone we've ever seen in the Star Wars universe, uh, who is very special for whatever reason to the cloners. And, and then the story really sets in earnest. So you have you know, these guys on the run. Uh, another wrinkle is provided when one of the Bad Batch, uh, the clearly evil uh, Crosshair, uh, his inhibitor chip seems to be working just fine. Uh, and uh, he starts, you know, attempting to mow down the Jedi in very, you know, in very much in opposition to his team. Uh, and they, uh, you know, they have a falling out. And Crosshair becomes a tool of the Empire to go down and start tracking down uh, the Bad Batch, you know, his former, you know, what became an Ursat's family of these misfit clone troopers. Uh, so it's all a lot of fun. You know, you have these, you know, five, you know, elite clone troopers on the run away from the clones, away from their army on the first time having to operate in the, in the universe on their own. Um, so there are themes of institutionalization going on there. Uh, you know, they have to learn how to use money and operate in the, you know, in the underworld as, uh, as mercenaries. Uh, and also there's the protective element that we've seen so many times in the Star Wars universe before where they have this, you know, young uh, scamp kind of in their protection uh, who may or may not have something to do with the Force that's kind of speculated on and very kind of keeps us at the edge of our seats because she's clearly very uh, preternaturally intuitive uh, and she has bounty hunters after her and, uh, you know, 
the chase begins and, uh, you know, hence the, uh, and thus, thus the popcorn eating ensues. Right. So is she the, uh, does she feel more like a Ray character? Is she fulfilling sort of the Grogu character? You know, I mean, I guess she's not a small, adorable baby Yoda, but is she, um, you know, more sort of precocious child Ray or neither of those? She's kind of all of those and also her own unique person at the same time. Um, you know, she's very much the, you know, the Oliver Twist uh, kind of character, uh, you know, this, this adolescent uh, who is all of a sudden on their own and, you know, out in the world and trying to figure everything out. There's a lovely, uh, you know, she grew up on the cloning facility on Camino, which is kind of a, 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 a water planet. And, you know, she's growing up in these cloning facilities, which are very, you know, sterile uh, kind of places. And, you know, she gets to walk into the world. We get this Wizard of Oz moment where she walks out of the spaceship onto a planet for the first, another planet for the first time. And the sun is shining and she picks up a handful of dirt and she says, this is, what is this? This is wonderful. Um, but at the same time, she's... Callback, right? Yeah. Oh, I thought so. It was a lovely moment. And it was also a callback, a really funny callback to real fans uh, of the show who uh, who know that Anakin Skywalker has this, you know, real hate-hate affair with Sand from his uh, native Tatooine, which was pretty funny. Um, but uh, she, she definitely shows very early on that she can handle herself, that she's uh, skillful. Uh, but at the same time... You know, she's vulnerable because she hasn't processed uh, and um, developed those skills, whatever her special talents might be. So in that line, I definitely put her um, in the likes of characters like Ezra Bridger, who is the, um, pretty much uh, the protagonist who we followed through Star Wars Rebels, which is another really great uh, Star Wars animated show, uh, or a young Ahsoka Tano uh, at the beginning of Clone Wars. Um, and, you know, familiar Star Wars characters like that. Um, so she's a little younger than, uh, you know, when we meet Rey or Luke Skywalker, um, which, put, you know, makes her a little bit more vulnerable and also kind of gets her in because we want to see her protected and we want to see her develop those skills and grow and fight uh, because she, uh, you know, she quickly is very, becomes very endearing to us. Uh, but she's also very much not a baby. So... You know, you clearly have got the whole, you know, backstory on everybody down and how this relates to other properties, you know, in, in Star Wars world. Um, would you say that if you have just, you know, seen the movies and seen Mandalorian or, um, you know, don't have as encyclopedic a knowledge as you do of how everyone relates to everyone else, is this still going to be a show you're going to enjoy or is, you know, might you get lost in some of the references? I think the real brilliance of this show is that uh, Dave Filoni and his crew managed to create something uh, that is on very familiar territory in the Star Wars universe that is filled with Easter eggs and callbacks and references to all of the other Star Wars stories and properties. But at the same time, you don't need all of those things to understand or even enjoy the story. So if you like Star Wars and you haven't delved as, as deeply into the nerd galaxy as I have, um, 
I think you can still find some enjoyment. Now, if this is the first Star Wars you're ever seeing, I'd say maybe start with some of the films and maybe, uh, you know, a TV show or two um, just to get yourself situated in the Star Wars universe. But if you watch the movies, maybe watch The Mandalorian, um, I find no reason why you couldn't enjoy uh, The Bad Batch because at its heart, it's basically like, you know, the A-Team. You know, you have this misfit crew on the run, they have this, uh, you know, adolescent girl in their charge who's, you know, finding her place in the world and they have to protect her and also develop her skills and they have to figure out what, what's going on with them and they're being hunted. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, really exciting, fun television that I think doesn't require, a, you know, an encyclopedia of Star Wars knowledge to just on a surface basis uh, have fun with. That said, if you do... Uh, have a real love for the Star Wars galaxy and you have gone down all the rabbit holes uh, or even a, you know, a bunch of the rabbit holes uh, I mean you don't have to have read all of the books and comics and everything like that but you know if maybe you've watched the last season of the Clone Wars and you kind of understand what's going on there you're going to get more so it's one of those properties where the more you've put into it the more you stand to really get out of it uh, which I think, again, is really brilliant on Filoni's behalf, uh, kind of balancing that tightrope between, uh, you know, a new property and a new story and making it seem fresh, while at the same time calling back to all those things about the Star Wars universe that we love. Yeah, it's a really great point, and it makes me think about our conversation earlier in the broadcast with Dan about the Murderbot series that that has you know, a very um, strong fandom as well. And um, I think with any series or any universe, probably the people who get most of the references and uh, the callbacks and the Easter eggs are those fans who have put in the time, who have read all the books and seen all the interviews and seen all the shows. Um, but to thread that needle between you know, is always, I think, a question that those of us who uh, review and recommend things have is, you know, can you enjoy this? Can you get something out of this if you um, haven't, if, if, if this is like your first day here, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it sounds like there's, there's something there um, in the Bad Batch um, uh, for those fans but the most enjoyment will be for the for the diehards. I totally agree. And I think, you know, again, that's really where the brilliance of the writing and the editing and direction of this series really comes in. Uh, and it just, um, it gives me a lot of hope for the Star Wars universe and for some of the forthcoming properties. Like, uh, we have a lot of Star Wars coming our way. We have the Ahsoka Tano show. We have a new Boba Fett show coming up. Um, yeah, this winter, which, by the way, um, is another thing that Filoni's great at. You know, these uh, there's there's going to be a lot of foreshadowing in these shows. If you're fans of these shows, there's going to be a lot of foreshadowing the characters uh, who maybe we've hinted at or maybe we've only briefly met, like Fennec Shand, uh, who's played by Ming-Na Wen in The Mandalorian, and we got only a little bit of her, uh, um, but she uh, she you know quickly proved as a new character to be a fan favorite. Uh, and she's a really cool character who's going to have a, you know, more prominence in uh, the new Boba Fett show. Well, she also shows up 
here in the Bad Batch uh, uh, a lot younger, clearly, because this is taking place like 25, 30 years um, before The Mandalorian. Uh, so it's really cool to kind of, you know, see how the different uh, strands of the web of Star Wars narratives kind of, you know, interlock and, you know, we can get, you know, little hints of what we might, you know, things we might see to come if we're really into these kind of things. Great point. And that's a good ending point, I think, for for us today. Um, thanks to you, Scott, for telling us about The Bad Batch. Again, that's going to be on uh, bookandfilmglobe.com, as is all of the uh, books, films, and uh, television uh, we've talked about today. Um, thanks to all of you for being here. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. I always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them. I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.